Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. And now on Drama on One, In the Wings. In tonight's episode, musician Finbar Fury, writer Kenneth Sweeney and actor Al McKenna talk about Wogan's Sweet Sixteen by Kenneth Sweeney, which took second place at the 2020 P.J. O'Connor Awards. My name is Kenneth Sweeney and I'm the writer of Wogan's Sweet Sixteen. Uh, Finbar Fury. My name is Al McKenna. I can just remember being Irish in London and, you know, keeping your head down. Maybe I was an introverted kid and, you know, you would feel so isolated. And then you'd come home in the evening and you'd switch on the TV. There would be this charismatic, proud Irish man, you know, Terry Wogan, talking and connecting with people and being so popular. And, and you know, you got to remember as well that this was the time when the IRA were letting off bombs and... I suppose one of the toughest things when you were living in the, the UK was the day after the IRA let off a bomb, you know, every every Irish person would have to go into work in England and, you know, they'd be feeling really guilty or whatever. And that struck me then, you know, how difficult that was. But then I thought, what was it be like for the most famous Irish person in the UK, Terry Wogan? What was it like for him to go on air, you know, straight after a bomb and, and uh, play Irish music? And it's very affecting, you know, the, the Davy Arthur and the Fury Brothers. He often played Sweet Sixteen and he played them after these bombs went off, you know, as a way of, you know, bringing Ireland and England together. It was after uh, my father had died, you know, in 1979. I was upstairs fixing something in, in the, the attic for my mother, you know, and I found a, a suitcase my father had, you know, with all his books and stuff. And uh, I found his uh, book he'd written uh, of tunes, you know, that he'd gathered and collected throughout his lifetime. And uh, I sort of inside it was the words of Sweet Sixteen, which I really liked, you know. And because uh, I remember going to see the Larry Parks doing the Jolson story when I was a kid. And when he sang Sweet Sixteen, I remembered it, you know, it was such a great song. And then my mother said, oh, it's a, that's a great Irish song, you know, you have to sing that. And just after he passed away, I said, OK, but it was only one verse and one chorus. But I didn't know what to do because it was too short, you know. And so I got the banjo out. It was the first time I'd played the banjo with the band for a long time now. I played it with the Clancy Brothers when I was on tour with them uh, way back in the 70s, you know, and at the early 60s. And I took the banjo out and I blew the dust off it and up I went and wrote the banjo piece. Having played a multitude of small parts, medium-sized parts, bigger parts on, on radio, but Terry Wogan, you had to bring something you didn't know you had because he's not just a voice and a bit of diddly guy, diddly being. There's a lot more to Terry Wogan. There's a lot more gravitas, an emotional gravitas, an intellectual gravitas, but I found that fascinating. One of the biggest reasons I wrote the play was I could see in the last few years, you know, the way that that Muslims, you know, were facing the same kind of prejudice that Irish people were, you know. And I just thought, this is bizarre. This is exactly how Irish people were being treated 30 or 40 years ago. We were the definition of a terrorist and people were suspicious of us and how quickly, you know, we forget. And again, it's it's literally just a very small number of, um, you know, hardline people. And and, and yet because of that, uh, you know, every Muslim has to face that suspicion just because there's a few hardline fanatics out there. Well, one of the best stories I have about Terry was we went over, there was a gang of us went over, Mick Quinn, uh, Fran Horley, Red, and DP, 
David Pennyfeather. And we all travelled over for his Red Nose Day, you know, in London. And uh, I think it was Andrea Corr. I'm not sure. One of the Corrs, one of the girls. And uh, I remember after we finished this Red Nose Day, we sang a song and he joined in with Red. I sang a song. The three of us sang a song together. Some funny song anyway. And uh, he loved that. So he drove us all the way down to his house. And... um, he brought me for a walk around his garden, beautiful, like a Tudor house, gorgeous. And Helen, his wife, was there, and she was a gorgeous lady, you know, made us feel so welcome at our home and the whole. So he, he said to me, come on, I want to show you the gardens. So he brought me for a walk, and we got to the end of the garden, and there was loads of horses way out in this big field, and he says, I love the horses. And there was a little box behind him, you know, just set up, and a couple of seats, you know. And I said, what's in the box? And he says, ah... And he opened the box and inside it was a little bottle of Irish whiskey. And he just poured a dribble for me and a dribble for himself. And he put the bottle back in the box and locked it and put the key in his pocket. And he says, here's Darland. And I says, here's Darland. And we tip glasses. He says, well done, Terry. And that's the way we were. You know, I, I loved his company. He was a gorgeous man. A treasure trove of utter genius. From television to radio to the millions and millions and millions of listeners... BBC renamed where he worked, Western House, to Wogan House. He was knighted by the Queen. He was a regular visitor to Buckingham Palace for lunch with the Queen Mother when she was alive and the Queen. So for somebody who left Ireland, met some resistance primarily from BBC management to his style and was welcomed open-armed in Britain by everybody from perceived lower class to upper class to every class. It's important to say here, you know, Terry Wogan has always said that he never had any examples of, of racism to his face in, in, in London. I mean, a bomb did come into the BBC, but he kind of jokes that it was kind of being from a irregular listener because he was away at the time. But the other thing about Terry Wogan I really like is I, I just think he left the stage, you know, his his, his death. I, I think he left the stage in such a, a dignified, touching way. There was no, you know, he didn't do any kind of um, interviews or anything like that. He just quietly left the stage and, and uh, you know, he talks a lot in his book, Terry Wogan, about kindness and, uh, you know, people showing more kindness to one another. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's you know it's moving enough and, and uh, you know, I, I just feel, you know, that... that uh, I just feel he's probably, he uh, doesn't get the credit he deserves. We met up through the years, you know, every time we toured in Britain, he always had a spot for us on his radio show. You know, it was early in the morning now, so he had to be up early and catch him, you know. But he always a sparkle in his eyes, a big smile on his face. And of course, they loved him. They loved him over there, you know. And when you think, uh, you know, the, the amount of charity that man collected, you know, was amazing when you think of it, you know, and the amount of people he that loved him, you know, really did. Gorgeous man. Well, if we go back in time, I heard I must have been about six and I heard this voice and he made this remark, oh, to be back in Dublin and then listening to the programme again, I'm six or seven and he had a thing called Fighting the Flab and I remember terms where now... Throw the napkin over the, the budgie's cage. And I was just enthralled. Of course I was worried, how could we do this play? Because we'd have to get someone who sounded like Terry. It was such a relief when I heard Al McKenna talking, you know, doing Wogan, because 
he didn't just do it the way any two-bit impersonator would do it or, or, you know, someone down the pub would do it. He was able to kind of bring inflections into Terry's voice, you know. And I think that Al managed to do that brilliantly. The last time I met him, we went over, I got a phone call from the BBC and they were doing a poetry reading and uh, him say, David, David Jason there of Fools and Horses, he was there. David was really lovely as well. And we were doing this poetry reading. There was about three or four of us, I can't remember. But it was at the, the whole thing was Terry wanted to sing Raglan Road at the end of the show. Now, you know, I played with the banjo, so he was singing it. I wasn't singing it with him. I was just singing a chorus with him, that in a little bit here and there. And then we went on the stage and he, we had a terrific, terrific day. My wife was with me, Sheila, at the time. And of course, we hooked up with Terry and his family. He had a son who has a restaurant in London. So he ordered in pizza for everybody rather than go out, you know. So we all sat around the table and just had a bit, a nice bit of crack and just drank a few bottles of beer. And he was happy just with us all there. He was a wonderful human being, you know. He didn't realise how, how, how special he was, you know. A very special man. You followed his career... And you were just loved that humminess, that natural, that 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 those cadences, that that, and you just looked in awe of what he was doing. And then, sadly, I met Kevin Reynolds, and I think over pints one night I was just doing little bits of Terry Wogan here, blah blah blah, blah blah blah, many years ago. And about a year ago, Kevin Reynolds phoned me and said, "Al, are you sitting down?" I said, "Yeah, how are you, Kevin?" Yeah, he says, "I have this play." And it's really about Terry Wogan. I said, oh, that's interesting. And I'd like you to play Terry Wogan. Ah, Jesus, Kevin, you're having a laugh. Oh, Jesus, look at that. And he said, no, Ali, he was cursing around. No, no, I think he could do this, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay. And he sent me the script. I read the script and I went, bloody hell, Jesus, this is, this is. And I said, the little boy who was six kicked in. I said, you won't get an opportunity again. And I said, yeah. The thing about it was that Terry Wogan had lived an awful lot. So, you know, he, he, nothing. He, he would literally switch on the mic, not know what way what way it was going to go and just go for it. You know, he was ad-libbing uh, impromptu. And so I had to go back and find these wonderful words like grouting, you know, trundling in your commode and, and you know, damn the torpedoes, he used to say. What I liked about Wogan, you know, as a guy was that he was... Um, you know, he was in Archie over here. He realised, you know, it takes a lot of courage to step outside maybe where you are, your, your comfy job and go somewhere else. And he did that time and time again. He was, you know, he was in the bank. You know, he decided he wanted to be in broadcasting. He left, he went to Archie. After a while, he decided that if he was going to, you know, move away from scripts and, and have this style and be himself, he was going to have to go to the UK. So himself and, and, and his wife, Helen, they go over there. She, he often talks about how supportive she was. Terry couldn't have done it without Helen. And and they went over and he made his own, he made his name, you know, and in his being Irish and being himself and Sweet Sixteen, that, that the plucking banjo. I was playing that as I was writing and it just, it just I don't know why, the music just kind of connected into kind of what I was saying, um, you know, what I was thinking, what I was saying. The banjo was a special instrument. My mother played the banjo. My father played it too, you know, but um, my mother used to do a thing, play a thing called Breakdown, which was right hand, you know, it was lovely style of playing the banjo. I just, since I was a kid, I just liked it, you know. She used to teach me bits and scraps, of, you know, when my father would be out fishing. He'd come in and say, put that thing away and bring your pipes out, you know. So, like, um, 
Yeah, I just enjoy the instrument and I love playing it. And of course, when I was with the Clancy Brothers, I had to brush up me, me banjo picking. That sort of helped me through, you know. And then when we left the Clancy's, Eddie and I, I went to Germany. I took the banjo out with the pipes. It was the first time now I'd taken both the instruments. And then we had the flutes as well. And Eddie had the, the fiddle and the baron and, and the guitar. So we had a, a heap of instruments between the pair of us. But the banjo was very important when we went to Germany because they put a rhythm for Eddie, you know, back rhythm, instead of playing the pipes because the pipes are limited, you know. But the banjo is not. You can walk up and down the banjo. So It was in end of November 2020, Kevin sent it, and yes, we were going to probably do it early 2021. And then COVID hit. One couldn't record it because of, because of COVID. But it still was haunting me everywhere. I was t- churning it around. We'd be on holidays. We'd go for a walk, having a swim, and just Terry Wogan here seeping into you, literally seeping into you, and w- which kind of made it in some ways worse because you realise, Jesus, this man's huge. This man is all over entertainment in, in, in the UK. So the more that gap with COVID, in many respects, made it more daunting because if we had it done it the January, February before COVID, it's done and dusted. But now you had time for it to literally, through osmosis, <laughs> take over you. There's mad stuff in the play. I mean, people say, my God, like, hang on a sec. Terry Wogan wrote to the BBC and David Attenborough was the guy who who who, uh, who sent him a letter back saying, you know, we don't want you or whatever. And I love it because, you know, David Attenborough says to Terry Wogan, we don't want you. And does Wogan give up? No, no, no. He sends a tape over. But the tape is back to front. But that's what gets Wogan the job. So he sends a factual letter to David Attenborough, gets him nowhere, but he sends it back to front, reel to reel. And, you know, it, it, it gets him hard. And I suppose it all depends what desk your tape lands on, your letter lands on. It's sheer luck. Wogan could have ended up a good bloke who just wrote letters to the BBC and didn't get anywhere, you know. Well, my father started me off at the pipes first, you know. And then um, I had some great uh, people around me, Tommy Moore, was, uh, who was with the Finton Lawler pipe band. Tommy was a great piper. Tommy taught me staccato, which is a Scottish style of playing. It's very abrupt, you know, all that, you know. So I could actually play a Scottish pipe chanter as well as an Ireland pipe chanter. I knew the rhythm for both. And Tommy was great. And um, I used to go to Tommy's house every Monday night, you know, and Tommy take out the pipes and get me into it with my father on the fiddle and we'd play. But mostly I'd say I picked up in sessions, you know. I was a member of Church Street Club, which um, was called the Fiddler's Club. And I went to the Piper's Club a few times, but Church Street Club was more freer because you, there was more instruments allowed through the door and you could sing there as well if you if you wanted to sing, have a sing-song. I met people like Sean Keane from the Chieftains and his brother James, and uh, Mick O'Connor, um, all great musicians, absolutely fine musicians. So we would have been kids together, you know, we're growing up together, so it was good. As Terry Wogan would say, when God was a boy, I decided to become an actor. I was working in shipping as a young man, loving it, and at about 23, 24, got involved with Brendan Smith Academy and a few other young actors. We formed from the theatre company. I said, this is it. I'm from the Navin Road in Dublin. I went to uh, St. Declan's for a couple of years. Uh, yeah, I left then. I, I was um, I went f- to fifth and sixth year in Marion College in Ballsbridge. Like a lot of people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I uh, I left school. I got into um, got into advertising. 
and uh, I was working in Wilson Hartnell which was a big ad agency at the time I was a projectionist and they had a lot of big ads a lot of big clients and it was a mad crazy place to work and I was a projectionist which means I was handling old film reels and I wanted to go to London you know London was the place to be that's where, that's where you know you got to remember that time unless your father had a business that was the only way you were going to have a job in Ireland your father had a business or you, maybe you went to university and aside from that everybody got on the boat it wasn't the plane it was the boat everybody went to London uh, Originally we're from Vicar Street uh, in the centre of Dublin I'm born in the Coombe and uh, grew up in Ballyfermot we got the house in Ballyfermot in 1953 so grew up in Ballyfermot and Father and mother were both musicians and my three brothers, we all grew up together, you know. Paul passed away a, few, a good few years ago now, the accordion player. And um, so we had a great time. Bonnie Farmer was great, great great uh, community, great people. I still keep in touch. I worked for a shipping company called Bell Shipping and at night we uh, went to the Brenda Smith Academy. Other actors there at the same time were Michelle Forbes and Owen Rowe. We started our own theatre company called the Reckless Theatre Company. Pierce McCaughey, who subsequently had uh, an illustrious career in advertising, and owner myself, and we started the company. And this was serious now. Uh, we put on Spring Awakening by Frank Wiedekin. And then you went out and into the world to get parts. And because I'd been a, a you know, projectionist, eventually I did get a job in the BBC Film Archives. And uh, so I, I had a, an idea, this, this talk of, of, you know, memos from the BBC at some point in this where BBC executives, they don't want to talk to people face to face. So, to, you know, to communicate that they don't like what you're doing, they'll send you a memo instead. So I ended up in the film archives of the BBC, so which meant that I knew a lot about films. So I wasn't actually rolling that many films, but it was a great place to go. I was really into play today when I was a kid I used to watch a lot of them because it was the, the follow on from the Wednesday night play and anything could happen on the Wednesday night play it was totally you know unpredictable and I remember my parents just you know my parents being just you know they never knew what they were getting you know the weird thing about the BBC film archives was that, that um, you could find these things that you'd seen on TV years ago in the film archives you could find things by Ken Loach you could find uh, Blue Remembered Hills by Dennis Potter which is that amazing thing where it's adults pretending to be kids or you know um, playing those roles and you could see a lot of that that realism and uh, how adventurous TV could be I mean that was really you know think of things like Ken Loach's Cathy Come Home about homelessness that was really breaking ground and, and saying something in a, in a political sense taking on subjects and uh, you know <laughs> some of those writers went too far but they were really believed in what they be, in what they were doing and they believed that TV was a great way of reaching the masses you know so they actually had tapes over there of whole nights of TV. So you could actually get a tape of a BBC Two night of TV that had started with the old grey whistle test and went into something else. And, within, and you could actually see it as it ran on the night. And those sort of things bring back kind of memories. So the funniest thing I can remember was that if some royal person, let's say, wasn't well, you kind of knew they were on the way out because, a, you know, a whole bunch of film cans would end up on a trolley, you know, kind of getting ready. They'd be ready in this stuff. For it. And then, you know, the Queen Mother would get a bit better and this trolley would kind of disappear back to where it was. I never dreamed for one minute, you know, would ever be a hit. But we got the orchestra in and Jerry Hughes did the... Uh, the arrangements with the orchestra, which was fantastic. And you had, they all came into the studio. So we got them in in one take. We were in like 11 o'clock in the morning, ready, steady, go. And I went into a box and opened up with a banjo and sang it. 
in the box with the banjo, you know, and they, the orchestra was, and we did it in one take. And then I remember we all, everybody was delighted about it. And then Freddie Myers at the time, who was there, he was the engineer. Freddie was great. So Freddie did a really great job. And we had Dermot O'Brien, which was in there too. It all happened so fast, you know, like we were in the pub next door, you know, having a coffee. I don't think, you know, half an hour after it all was finished and we thanked everybody. And we didn't really think that much of it till I heard it when Freddie had mixed it and put it together and then he brought me in and I said wow my mother is really going to like this that's what was my, my first words were you know when we went over to London to do Top of the Pops of course we met up with Terry we then he was doing his radio show that morning and we had to go over and rehearse and we had to re-record the song again which is very funny because of the unions in, in Britain at the time I had to actually go into the BBC studio and re-record it with, a, with another orchestra and we did it again because it wasn't allowed, the Irish tape wasn't allowed at the time with the, the British Musician, uh, Musicians Union. So anyway, I said to Jim, did you, have you got the tape, would you, our tape, the Irish one? He said, yeah. I said, OK. So I went in, we did a really good version of it, you know, just out the window, took the tape, I said, OK, I'll give that to Top of the Pops when we get there. So I just gave Jim the original tape, which was done in Ireland, and I kept the one we did in the BBC. So the original was played on it anyway. And Terry, of course, was in on that one. And like it was great fun between all lot of us, you know, because he knew the difference. If I was to say what was your favourite part of acting, I kind of think radio. You know, it's endless. The opportunities, what you can do. I'm very intimate. You can be vocally, do so much stuff. So, so, so radio would be my first love, really. They say, you know, with radio plays that you start off with something loud, you know, grab the attention and there's, there's nothing really louder than an IRA car bomb going off in London. I mean, can you imagine just as a way of opening into it? But I had to write a log line for, uh, you know, for the play at Wogan Sweet 16 when I entered into the PJ O'Connor Awards. And, you know, I, I had written, you know, young Terry Wogan attempting to make his mark at the BBC against the backdrop of an IRA bombing campaign. And after I sent it in, I thought, my God, that's the maddest play ever. Because you've got, you got Terry Wogan, you know, trying to be himself, trying to, trying to get onto the radio and find his, his niche in London. You've got the IRA letting off bombs. You know, you've got the Director General up on his roof dancing in his leotard. You've got Governor Alunas see, you know, Frank Kelly, brilliant genius, screaming at Nula over the Lords of Leaping and all these unwanted presents. And, and you know, you think, my God, this is the, you know, I have to say to RTE, <laughs> I sent this in and for them to have the ambition to do it, to say, yeah, we'll do this. We, you know, we'll get a guy, you know, we, we, we'll get Al, you know, going to be Wogan and empathises Wogan, you know, we'll get the Frank thing in, we'll get the IR. There's so many reasons why this play wouldn't have been made or another broadcaster would have gone, no way, this is a much easier life to be had here. And I mean, that's what I loved about it. I, I love the fact that Archie were prepared to do this. And it's kind of touching in ways. Uh, Al Jolson sold something ridiculous, like eight million copies of it, you know, when he released it, you know. And so, and John McCormick actually won a fish call, I think, with it. I think it was 1912. Check it out, you I don't know. But it was, it's been there, it's been around and around for such a long time. But my mother always said, the song was written in Ireland and went to America. It's as simple as that. First thing I did really was Fabrina Foss, uh, MacDara Farta. I always remember Siobhan McKenna coming into the dressing room of the Peacock and I was sharing a dressing room with McDara, McDara and froze 
when Siobhan McKenna came in and she was, oh, we're clean, we're gold, we're clean. I said, bloody hell, this is serious. And then you did Bits in the Gate, Amadeus, directed by Pat Laffin, which had two runs, I think it lasted three months each. And then Bits, Cherry Orchard and the Abbey and television, Father Bertie and Fair City, which has kind of lingered with me for 20 years. Enjoyed playing that because it, it, it was difficult and I tried to bring every time as the writers used to say to me, Al, you're an awful devil. I give you a script, but you kind of change it, not to make him too sanctimonious and whatever. Children came into play and maybe I took a couple of years out to look after them, which was just extraordinary. And as an actor, I think it beco- I became a better actor because of it, because it slowed the tempo down and gave you an outlook in life that really you probably wouldn't have had. And helped me in, 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 in other parts. I met Frank Kelly years ago. I was in a band and I was doing music. Uh, Brian, we did a few albums on a label called Satanta Records in London. It's kind of jangly guitar music. You know, I met Frank then later on and I was, I was a journalist and he was saying he's still doing the music and I said, no, well, I'm not, you know, I'm doing journalism now and I'm working in newspapers. Maybe not as cool or as artistic or whatever. And Frank was just brilliant. He said to me, you know, oh my God, you're, you know, you're supporting your family and you're paying a mortgage and, you know, that's what it's about. And, Later on, I thought, my God, like, he was a very, uh, you know, an artistic guy. It's lovely that Frank's record comes on every Christmas. And isn't it really nice that, you know, this Christmas we've got this, uh, we've got this wonderful story about it being played at the BBC. And I'm sure wherever Frank is, he's having a great laugh at it. I was knocked out when I heard Sinead had made a statement about the music, you know, and the Lonesome Boatman, of course, you know absolutely blown away you know I mean Sinead is a big star you know it's great that she she mentioned me you know and remembered it you know I remember when she was very young at the time and she went on stage you know and like it's a tough it's a tough life at the you know when you're starting off especially you know you're sort of mixed up you don't know which way to go I remember listening to her singing and she just had that you know, when, when you hear somebody, it's like listening to Imelda singing, you know, Imelda has it too, you know, and in the cars, the girls have it as well, you know, it's just that that little sprinkle of stardust, I suppose, you know, I don't know what to, it's just something that's in you, and Sinead has it, yeah. But wonderful, it's great that, you know, I feel, I feel absolutely, I'm not worthy of it, but, you know, she's a lovely, lovely lady. Acting, yes, is, is a selfish life, in the sense that you are totally committed. If you're sick in the morning, you get out of bed, flu, any ailment, you do the job. On stage, you do the job. And that can be a problem in family life, I think, that that commitment may obscure other aspects of of one's life. And it's terrifying because even if you're on a stage play and you've rehearsed it for six weeks and you're doing it seven or eight times a week, each time you go on stage is terrifying because it's a new journey and you may forget your lines. Your concentration has to be so good and you have to delete anything that happened during the day with you. So that takes concentration and commitment. The Daily Express, they did say things in, in the paper. I mean, my father read them out to me where, you know, they would be questioning, the you know, the IRA are letting off bombs. Why are there so many Irish entertainers doing well over here? And that stuff was kind of whipped up. This feeling, maybe anti-Irish feeling. And to the credit of the British people, a lot of them, they had Irish neighbours and Irish friends and they knew these people, their Irish friends, we were not supporters of the IRA, didn't believe in blowing people up. And I think, you know, the biggest factor in all of this, you'd say, is 
8 million people listen to Terry Wogan on the radio. So 8 million people obviously realised that Irish people, you know, weren't like this. I wrote a, a poem one time about being born a musician. And how do you know? So he says, you know, it's like, he says, I came the road by music's door. I felt the love and I yearned for more. It's passion how I long to hold a love affair with ancient tones. And who could say where love will show so pure, so fine, the gentle rose. The sweetest kiss I've ever known was a teardrop falling on my soul. And who could say where music's born, free spirit of the world flows on and circles us with nature's womb to breathe sweet life on the treasured poem. I've wept with feelings from your past, your love, your joy, oh music's heart. You bade my life in mystery and gave freedom to my destiny. And who can say where music goes? And rays of sunshine flowers grow, the perfect touch from nature's hand to create within the soul of human. Well, I'm finished now, you know, just threw in the book, the towel, I'm um, getting the book finished. Um, nothing really, just a few private gigs probably, you know, here and there, just to keep the hand in. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm just uh, doing probably one more album, uh, which will be a musical album flute and pipes probably and um, and that'll be it I think we'll just have a look about some place where to sit back and read a few books and enjoy life and watch the kids take it over you know Oh I, I have no regrets about being an actor because not to have done it I mean it's superb it is really I mean a lot of my actor friends you never talk money like oh jeez I because you, you, your attitudes to money are different. You're not looking to get the new kitchen or a new car or where do you go on holidays. And my actor friends, when I meet them and have a pint or whatever, they're so interesting. The, 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 the topics of conversation and books, literature, are just common threads uh, of life that they're interested in. is is hugely fascinating. And having worked some time with my kids on the private side, Jesus, I've been bored silly in the real world. None. I don't think we had a wild, mad, mad life, you know. I mean, three years with the Clancy brothers, we had, you know, um, and then with my own brothers, it was 10 years on the road already. I mean, I left Ireland in 1967. I didn't go back till 1976, you know. And um, then some, yeah. Then we formed a band in 1976 and of course that took off and oh, we've seen our fair share of the world now, you know, we had our good times, you know, so it's time now to just, you know, pull on the reins a bit. And that was musician Finbar Fury, writer Kenneth Sweeney and actor Al McKenna talking about next week's drama on one, Wogan's Sweet Sixteen by Kenneth Sweeney, which took second place at the 2020 P.J. O'Connor Awards. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.